Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. If you are new to the Radio Islam family, welcome. Thank you for tuning in. Now, the next thing you want to do is to make sure that you stay tuned in. So keep up with us on social media by following and liking our pages. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That is at Radio Islam USA. I like this beat. So let's let's just keep this with us for a minute. Um, <laughs> also let you know to make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast. So you might miss the uh, broadcast on radio, but you can always go back SoundCloud, Google Play, um, Apple Podcasts. So subscribe, rate and review and also tune in. So look for us at Radio Islam USA. Had to just prolong that for a moment. I uh, really enjoyed that nice and easy and mellow introduction. Uh, today, we are pleased to have in studio with us uh, one of the bright stars of the future um, who is not waiting to be invited, uh, who is saying, I'm here and I'm ready to contribute. I'm ready to lead. Uh, we have with us Nashra Muhammad, who is a DePaul freshman who is running for District 219 on the school board. Yes. So we are pleased to welcome her. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome, Salam. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, yeah, so you, you, you're jumping out there right now. So we've got a lot of questions. Uh, of course. <laughs> first, first of all, I mean, besi- besides uh, the age, how, how old are you right now? I'm 18 years old. 18 years old. So I love that. So if my daughters happen to listen to this at some point, um, you got somebody a year ahead of you who's <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so, so it, that's great to see. We love to see this kind of engagement. Uh, what is it that has made you decide that this is the uh, position that you, you know, that you see yourself contributing in? Um, well, I grew up in Chicago public schools and my time there, you know, I was a very engaged and bright student. Um, unfortunately, due to the lack of resources CPS offered to its students, I couldn't very, I couldn't get as far as a student in a different district could. Um, well, when I moved to Niles Township during my sophomore year of high school, you know, um, I was on a completely different level on education-wise, and I realized, like, okay, these are the differences between this is this is how school is supposed to be, you know, this is how school this is how a school is supposed to be structured, you know, and that's how I really became passionate on you know improving the school systems for students, and you know, I would start with CPS. I would love to really, you know, engage in improving CPS. But, you know, at my age, I feel like that's such a big monster to tackle right now. Yeah. And, you know, that's why I want to start with District 219. Um, District 219, you know, uh, in Niles Township, it served me greatly. You know, I've come this far because of Niles West. Um, it, Niles West offers so many clubs, so many, or, like, so many organizations students can be a part of. And it just really makes... I mean, it made me thrive personally. And, you know, although, like, the the schools are great, I do see, like, from my perspective, I I think that there can be improvements. Oh, well, I'm sure that goes without saying. No matter how well you're doing, you could always be doing better. You could always be doing better. Right. So so having this experience in CPS and then this transition uh, to uh, this same district that you went to school in, Yes. Uh, 219. Yes. So having the experience that you had there, um, what would be the first thing 
that you would look to, you know, your first board meeting, you're elected uh, and, and you are with your colleagues now. What is the first thing that comes to mind that you need to to address? Um, I would address civic engagement. Okay. I really believe that, you know, making students engaged in after school activities and making them join clubs and organizations is a big part of learning. Um, personally, I I am where I am because I, you know, volunteered at Laura Fine's Democratic Office of Evanston. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of students, I feel like, okay, from the ages of 13 to 18, 17, you know, your brain is very vulnerable. You know, you're, you can either get into the correct company or the wrong company. And in order to, you know, make students, keep students on the correct path, I think, you know, schools, school, the schools in my district should require students to engage in after-school activities. They should, it, should make, it should be an, a requirement for students. Um, you know, luckily, I had my support system throughout high school. I was, you know, a part of MEC, the mosque, the mosque in Morton Grove. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was very well connected with, you know, the teachers over there. And the um, I had mentors there, you know. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of students don't have that. They don't have a sense of, but like, they don't, they don't feel like they belong, you know. And if you don't feel like you belong, um you don't know what you're doing. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what direction you're headed in your life. Mm-hmm. And I had the privilege to, you know, sign up for that internship I, you know, got in the Democratic Party of Evanston, where I luckily got to work with, you know, powerful women like Laura Fine and Jan Joukowsky. You know, mm-hmm. luckily I was a part of a beautiful mosque, you know, with a beautiful community to really help me, you know, help me stay on the correct path. And, you know, people just don't have that. Students don't have that. You know, regardless of where you come from, you know, not everyone has the same privileges as you do. I luckily have two parents who kept me on the correct path. I luckily had their influence and then, you know, other influences as well. But, you know, I really think that the school should really make it a priority for students to engage in civic engagement. So speaking about um, political activity, civic, civic engagement, uh, and the experience that you had with the Democratic uh, Democratic Party of Evanston. Um, what were some of the takeaways? What are some of the, the lasting things that have stayed with you from that experience? Uh, well, I like serving my community. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Evanston is not where I live. Mm-hmm. I live in Lincolnwood. Yeah. And, but, um, you know, really in being involved in, you know, helping on campaigns and, you know, volunteering in organizations, you know, that I was in, the Humanity Projects, the Chicago Coalition of the Homeless, I think that it's very important. And it's one of the sole reasons, it's one of the really big reasons why I'm running for office right now, you know? I think it says a whole lot. First of all, most folks don't know what it's like to run for elected office. Mm -hmm. And it can be... Uh, the, the time and the energy that it takes from you, yeah. uh, it's something that you have to go through. I've, oh, I've gone through it. Yeah, I've, I've, I've had that bout myself some years ago running for office. Um, but having gone through, having seen, seen the inside, uh, the inner workings, do you feel that that has, that has prepared you for what is ahead of you right now? And in uh, and, and, and answering that question, could you tell us exactly when is the election going to be? Uh, definitely. Um, the election is going to be April 2nd. Okay. But I do think that, you know, my previous experience with engaging within my community really helped me, you know, get this campaign started. Um, 
my, you know, I volunteered a lot throughout high school, you know, at several organizations. And every time I would volunteer, I would feel still like a part of me didn't really do everything I could, you know, because I had school nine to five. You know, I can't really help so many people all at once because I didn't, I'm one person, I can't do it. And, you know, although I think volunteering is a great opportunity to really engage yourself in helping people, mm-hmm. I think running for office and being a representative for the underrepresented people, you know, that's a big thing. I want to be an advocate for the underrepresented people. I want to be an advocate for the minorities. And I want to be an advocate for, you know, the young students that are in the schools right now. Mm-hmm. That's my, you know, really. What, what's the demographic? Of, um, the demographic. There are um, a lot of white people. Mm-hmm. Um, there, We do have a really big Indian-Pakistani community at uh, Niles West and Niles North. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, there is some, you know, black and Hispanics. Um, and, you know, we do have a lot of Asians. Okay. So overall, it's very diverse. The schools are very diverse. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I just think, like, students can be better represented. Mm-hmm. So, from a uh, socioeconomic standpoint, um, is it's a this is one of the more um, I would say stable communities. Yes, definitely. Okay, definitely. all right. So there are resources that are able uh, that are available. It's it's a matter of how those resources are uh, deployed. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, what is there a challenge that you see oh. ahead of you? What what are I wish you all could see, right? <laughs> Everybody's just like, oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, what what are some of the challenges that, that you see in front of you? Like for running for office right sure, now? Sure, uh, My age. I am 18 yeah. years old, and I have, you and know. If and I could, if I could, I, I apologize, apologize oh, for fine. interrupting. But when you said age, I also have to realize that even, even in introducing you, I'm sitting here and I'm going, all this is wonderful, right? But I don't want to take away from the fact that this is a, this is a very uh, serious, whether you were mm-hmm. 18 or 35 or 45, it doesn't matter, right? But this is something that kind of seeps in, and we don't people don't intend to necessarily mm-hmm. be uh, to belittle or take away from what's what you know the, the gravity of what you're doing. Yes. Uh, but it's important to be reminded that it's not just about yes. your age. So, no. f- forgive me for my interruption, please. You're please fine. continue. No, um, yeah, no, I. I agree, and I really think that you know I'm gonna really use my age as a as a step up. Okay. You know, I, I've been talking to so many people, you know, throughout this whole process. I've been talking to my you know community. I'm I'm going around Lincolnwood gathering petitions. I'm on the train station gathering petitions, and every time you know I introduce myself, and they're like, "Oh, who are you collecting petitions for?" It's so funny, <laughs> and it's like, "Oh, I'm collecting petitions for myself," you know. Um, <laughs> And it's just, you know, at first, a lot of people have a very interesting reaction to it. It's very like, okay, you're not qualified, you know, Um, because I do know the people that are currently on the board for um, D219, they are, you know, some are doctors, some are, you know, they're, you know, full-time working adults with families, Mm -hmm. you know, and they have experience. They have experience in finance. They have experience in, you know, so many things. And me, I'm a college student just starting. Mm-hmm. And I'm really, you know, my perspective, I think my perspective is really important because I'm a recent graduate of these schools. I know more about the schools than they do. They're looking at the schools from a balcony's perspective. 
I've already walked through the halls, you know. Mm-hmm. I've lived through the policies the board the board has pushed. I've you know I've seen programs cut. I felt it. I felt the embarrassment my school felt when there were cases of nepotism going on. You know, I felt everything as a student. So I definitely think that my age is something that I am using to help me win this campaign, inshallah. Mm, inshallah. Very, uh, very uh, intelligent move. Um, just just referencing your own experience uh, in there. Uh, what are some of the uh, opportunities uh, that you see within, because, and I, okay, I should frame this a little bit differently. Uh, we've seen uh, another uh, young sister, uh, Bushra Amuala, uh, who's also who's running for uh, for the uh, county board? Yes, um, and kind of brought up some of the same same concerns, right? Mm-hmm. But in terms of the opportunities for coalition building, the opportunities for networking, uh, what are some of the opportunities that have presented themselves uh, to you at this point so far? Um, well, I have gained a lot of attention from a lot of you know people from my community my you know i have a really big support system at my mosque you know i because i'm really choosing to engage myself in this position for my community i've been you know receiving a lot of um attention to really attend a lot of events Mm -hmm. events like volunteer events and you know i you know i've just been receiving a lot of attention for that Mm. you say in your I guess in your your desire to uh, become a board member with a D219 is that you want to establish a climate of trust and transparency on yes. the school board. Yes. Um, has that been has that been a problem in the past? I believe that, you know, our district does a great job in putting everything online. You know, the minutes are online. Okay. You know, everything is online. The budget is online. But, you know, looking at it from my perspective, you know, I have two Indian parents and, you know, they're very, very busy. My mom has a, you know, daughter. My, I have a younger sister who's mm-hmm. seven months old. My dad works full time. And I've been noticing, you know, asking around my community, you know, I've been noticing a lot of parents really asking me like, oh, like, I don't know where the money goes. I don't know. Like, I pay taxes for the school, but I have no idea, you know, where everything is going. And, you know, that has, you know, parents, parents care a lot about school. But I really think that the students should be encouraged to attend these board meetings. Parents should be more encouraged to attend these board meetings. I think that's very important. And, you know, before my decision, before my decision to run for District 219, you know, I asked my parents, okay, like, mom, dad, like, I heard, like, you you know, I did know about the board meetings, luckily, because I had friends who used to attend them. But I asked my parents, and they had no idea what I was talking about, you know. And I've noticed a similarity in the same attitude within the community as well. And, you know, it's really, I there are parents that are engaged. But I think that my the parents in the community I live in aren't as, you know, engaged. And I think that's very important. So the board could possibly do a... Um, do better in terms of reaching out yes, to the parents. Yes, and I also think the board can be more diverse as well. Mm. That's interesting point. Definitely. So uh, right now, are there any minorities? Is it um, uh, uh, are there? Is it primarily 
just uh, yes. just 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 white um, uh, yes. members. Yes. Mm, okay. Um, you know, there's like one or two in you know in different di- the school districts throughout our neighborhood. You know, right. But it's primarily white, and you know, I really think that a lot of a, a lot of like Indian Pakistani, not even Indian Pakistani people, a lot of people that are not white. You know, they don't feel as comfortable really engaging themselves in these um, board meetings mm-hmm. and these events because there's no one really representing them on the board. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, like I know personally, like if there was some, like if there was something going on, my parents would not feel comfortable going to like an all white event. You know, they would want someone of their, you know, you know, own culture to be representing them over there. And I think that's very important, having, you know, our board be more diverse. And I really want to be the, like, an advocate for the minorities, you mm. know, the people that feel underrepresented okay. as well. How did your parents respond to your decision to run? Uh, well, my mom, well, they, they were very happy. Okay. They were very proud of me, and they were very happy. Uh, my parents were, my parents are very, um, very strict about school, and that's, what played a big role in the person I am today. So they kind of asked me, like, oh, are you going to be able to handle both, you know? And mm-hmm. alhamdulillah, so far, I've been doing a great job balancing both. Um, they, But they're very happy, alhamdulillah. They're very supportive, and I wouldn't be able to, you know, really be where I am without their support. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great to hear that you have the, the, the support that really matters the most. Of course, the, of course. The support at home. Um, what would be the first thing? that you would do? Uh, the first thing I would do if I got elected would be to really focus on the improvement of the student's experience at high school. Okay. And by that, I mean that's a very broad point. I really think the school should, you know, from my experience as a student nine months ago, I've seen, you know, students feel so out of place. You know, I had a dance class where... Um, I, there was a there was a girl and she was um, she had like a disorder mm-hmm. and um, she was crying and I saw her crying and I went up to her and I was like hey are you okay like you know what's up and um, she was like oh the period before in my lunch period these girls were bullying me for the way I was talking and I heard that and I was like shocked because this still like bullying goes on like, you cannot stop bullying, you know? And, you know, our school does do a good job, like, really preventing that. Mm-hmm. But it's always going to happen. And, you know, she was talking to me, and she just started to cry. And my teacher at that time, she basically told her to shut up and sit down wow. because she was disrupting the class. And, you know, I heard that, and my best friend heard that in the class. And, you know, we were, like, astonished. You know, there's... She, that girl was in a very vulnerable place. And just to shut her out like that, like, I don't think that's a very good way of really improving her, you know, experience. Mm. So in terms of uh, sensitivity, sensitivity, training, training, you know, I also think that um, by really improving civic, like by really requiring civic engagement, you know, students can be better, you know, feel better 
in the school themselves. They can feel more comfortable. They can feel more. They can have a sense of where they belong. You know, they can have a friend group,、mm-hmm. and that's the number one place where like I would start. That's the place where I would really focus on. But of course, I would really listen to the other board members as well, and I would you know、mm-hmm. just wait to see how everything goes. But that's definitely one of my main focuses.、Mm. All right. So as a board member.、Um, I know every school board has、uh, the, the the task of cooperating and directing,、uh, dealing with the superintendent,、uh, leadership in the schools, and、uh, when it comes to issues like like bullying, like you just you just you just mentioned,、uh, do you see maybe the board operating in a different type of、uh, manner where it's not just about de- dealing with the leadership, but also getting into the schools as well? Well, I believe that the board's job is to govern. And、yeah. I believe that the administration's job is to really enforce.、Mm-hmm. And my job as a board member would be to enforce policies that really, you know, support certain ideas, you know, in relation to bullying.、Um, we already have a great, you know, a great support. You know, obviously every school, every school really wants to prevent bullying.、Right. Um, but I would really. You know, enforce civic engagement. I would really push for the requirement of civic engagement, and I would really want to push that as a policy,、mm-hmm. and really have the the my board members engage in the policy and really support it. And you know, my job as a board member would be to, you know, really deal with the superintendent. You know, because everything everything I do in that position. Would be for the benefit of the students, you、right. know. That's the primary. Those are the people that I am serving.、Mm-hmm. You know, I want to experience. I want to, you know, make their experience better. I want to, you know, I want to make new programs for them. Everything is for the students,、mm-hmm. and my job as a board member would be to really push policies and, you know, f- allocate money in a way that would be very beneficial to students that really want certain programs, certain clubs, certain activities, and, you know. All right. Now,、um, you mentioned earlier the experience that you've had when it, you know, when you're out collecting,、uh, getting signatures for petitions,、uh, for your petition to be on the ballot. Have you secured your spot、uh, as of yet? No. Well, I am in the process of collecting petitions. I'm almost done. Alhamdulillah. Okay.、Um, the I have until December 10th. Okay. And then that's when I will, inshallah, be on the ballot. Okay.、Um, now, when it comes to、uh, social media, people being able to find out more about your campaign, they want to volunteer,、um, or, or just maybe have you come out.、Um, is there any? You got any links that we can yes,、uh, promote? Yes, yes, I do have my Facebook and my Instagram, which I will.、Um, do you want me to? Yeah, you can go ahead. Okay.、Uh, my my Facebook and my Instagram is vote for Nostra,、okay. um, and my website. Will be voted for Nasra as well. It's actually in the process of being made right now, but it w- it will be done within the next couple days, inshallah. Okay, inshallah. So vote for Nasra. Yes. All right. <laughs> Simple and to the point. <laughs> All right. Well, it has been a pleasure talking to you. It's been great talking to you too. Yeah, and we certainly、uh, wish you well. And feel free to come、Thank、back、so、and、much. let us know how things are going. Thank you so much. All right. I really appreciate it. All right, Radio Islam family. That was Nasra Muhammad.、Uh, she is running for school board district two nineteen. Right. So we'll be keeping an eye out. All right, we're going to go ahead and take a short break, and we will be back in a moment. This is Radio Slam on WCEV 1450 AM.
Islam. The nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. Remember, folks, keep up with us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You'll find us wherever you get yours at. So that's uh, Apple Podcasts. So make sure that you review, rate, uh, subscribe. Uh, we're on SoundCloud, Google Play, and TuneIn. Look for us at Radio Islam USA. So we've got um, we've got some great developments. Uh, I guess one of the great things about having the well, let me stop myself in my tracks before we go any further. Give my brother the moment to give you the salam. It's the impressive one, assistant producer Ibrahim Bay. Assalamualaikum. Waalaikum salam. So um, I was, as I was about to say. Um, there is so much going on. I guess this is probably a news junkie's uh, just just greatest dream right now, right? Because there's always something going on. So one of the things that I want to talk about for a moment is um, you shared with me an article earlier uh, by Michelle Alexander, the author of The New Jim Crow. If you haven't read that, um, that is a must-read. Uh, if, if you're into criminal justice reform, uh, that one, and also I'll throw another one out there for you, and that is Slavery by Another Name, another awesome, awesome uh, work. But in this article that appeared in the New York Times, she brought attention to something that many of us may not really be thinking about. So she's projecting, she introduced a term, e-carceration. Now, what is e-carceration? Let me ask you this. Ibrahim, when you first heard, when you first read that term, Incarceration. Did did you t- have to pause for a moment? Yeah, of course, because I had never heard it before. I don't know if she's the one who coined it, but mm-hmm. it was certainly the first time that I heard it. Yeah. And uh, her, specifically because of who she is, if she's using the term, that means it's definitely an important term, something that right. you know we need to know about. Yeah, absolutely. But I, it took. I I tried to kind of uh, pause for a second and like imagine what she could be talking about, mm-hmm. um, and it was. Yeah, give me the perception of maybe people being imprisoned, like, via the Internet or via yeah. their, you know, mm. online identity or something. Like, I didn't know exactly what she was talking about, but, yeah. You know, the first thing I thought about, and I know this is way off and certainly less critical, I thought about people being banned from Facebook. You know, people uh-huh. talk about Facebook jail, right? They they uh, violated some policy, posting policy, and they get their access revoked for 30 days. Mm. Right? That was, like, the first thing that came to mind. But this is a lot deeper, and she connected this to something that um, many Floridians who have had their right to vote taken from them because they were convicted of felonies are really looking forward to, and that is the right to vote. So that was passed in this uh, previous election, 
And that's affecting 1.4 million people in Florida who now have the right to vote. And she's connecting this in a way, this idea of incarceration to, um, to, the, to the whole system, right, to the cash bail system in particular. Yeah, again, reinforcing the, the, the fact that the structure of the prison system mm-hmm. is largely based in, in a large part was designed to suppress black men. Mm-hmm. And I think that's still with us. And that, I mean, people are starting to wake up to that now, but every now and then something like this just comes in front of your face and you're like, damn. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and what's interesting about it is uh, we think about incarceration and uh, when we think about that, we think of the loss of uh, not just the loss of physical freedom, right? Your freedom of movement is curtailed. You don't, you don't have that. You can't go where you want to go when you want to go. So this idea of incarceration, when we think about uh, ankle monitors, right, that's, that's what she's getting into. That's what she's talking about. And how even though you have states that have, uh, you know, on, on their face when you look at it, they've got rid of cash, the cash bail system. I think she mentioned California. Um, no, it wasn't California. I think she said they're moving towards that. But she mentioned two, two, two uh, locales in particular. But the, the real important point to think about here is even without a cash bail system, if you still have it so that people are restricted in their movement, they're, they're still incarcerated. And that's why, you know, this whole, whole term of incarceration. Yeah. Um, before we get there, I would like to read a little bit of this yeah, yeah. and Go then ahead. have you explain. I don't know even the details of this myself. So she says, um, bail reform is a case in point, thanks in part to new laws and policies, as well as actions like the mass bailout of inmates in New York City jails that's underway. The unconscionable practice of cash bail is finally coming to an end. In August, California became the first state to decide to get rid of its cash bail system. Okay, Last Cal- year, mm-hmm. New Jersey virtually eliminated the use of money bonds. Yeah. Explain to me a little bit about the cash bail system, what it is, how it works, and why it is, uh, it was, it is such a, a problem. Well, um, this past Ramadan, there was the Believer's Bailout. Um, and that basically, it was targeted towards Muslims, but it was really dealing with the, the cash bail system, which is when you're arrested, you're processed, you're taken into county jail, um, you have not been before a judge at this point. You have not played your case. You've been charged, but in order for you to be free, you have to put up a bail. You know, you get a bond and say, okay, um, you're charged with con- a possession of a controlled substance. Uh, and this might be your first time or whatever, So, but the, you're, they're going to give you a bond. Let's just throw something out. You got a $10,000 bond. You have to come up with 10% of that in order to you know, bail out. That's your bail to, to, to leave. Um, right. Instead of being released on your own recognizances, you know, you have to put up money. Now, the problem with this is that it disproportionately affects those who are least able to pay, right? It, it, it affects those, uh, you know, the poor. So you have people right now who are sitting in, you know, we're in Chicago, uh, Cook County, second largest county jail system in the country. Um, we have people who are sitting in, in the county jail because they can't come up with $1,000. They can't come up with 
five hundred dollars. Mm. Right? There's no embellishment. This is And they haven't been convicted of a crime. Have not been convicted because the wheels of that system move so slowly. And and this is also you know, it, it brings us our, our attention to another point, which is the resources that the uh criminal justice system has in terms of its prosecutors, its defense attorneys, uh judges, the whole thing. They are working they don't have the resources to give people a speedy trial. Um, so the cash bail system, with it being removed, well, then you have to look at what's going to be put in its place. I don't, I don't want to jump to the end yeah. just yet. But just to clarify, yeah, that clarifies why the cash bail system is such an atrocity. Yeah. So it puts people, it puts low-income people at a automatic disadvantage. Absolutely. And it's basically punishing them for a crime that they have not been convicted of because they can't pay the money to get out. Exactly. Whereas people who do have enough money to post the the bail Mm -hmm. can just get out and wait trial, right? Right. Right. And it's important to also mention with this, with this cash bail system, what it does, it puts those people who are least likely to be able to come up with, uh, with that bond. Uh, It puts them in a position where they are more likely to accept uh, plea bargains, whether they're guilty or not, right? Because they're sitting waiting for their court date, and somebody comes to them, you know, the, the pro- their, their defense attorney oh, comes okay. to them and, and says, look, take this plea. They're offering Like at least they let year. you out. If yeah. They, um. Well, no, not so much even letting you out, but they offer you. I mean, you may have been sitting for six months. The charges that you might be facing, mm-hmm. the sentence for that if you're convicted could be, say, if it's, say it's five to seven years, Yeah. right? Um, you've been sitting already for a year. Mm. So it's like, look, we'll give you, if you plead guilty, we'll break it down, we'll, we'll, we'll give you two and a half years, and you're out, as opposed to waiting and waiting, and you don't have the money for effective counsel, as it is. You know, you're dealing with the overworked defense attorney. Yeah. Um, so it puts them in a position where they're likely to accept things that are not in their best interest. Yeah, there's been other work done, too, about uh, detailing, looking at the statistics, the percentages of people with uh, appointed defense attorneys yeah. who accept a plea deal. It's like way, way, I don't remember how much, but it's like mm-hmm. ridiculously high. Yeah. Uh, way out of proportion. Mm-hmm. And and here's something else that's really important to think about, folks. Uh, if you haven't seen the, um, what is it, Khalil uh, Browder? story he was um this was a young man who eventually took his own life uh but he was incarcerated in rikers island he was held for about three years he did about two years of his time there in solitude right segregation by himself which is a whole which is a whole other conversation but they kept offering him plea deals you know and he refused it. He kept refusing it. And eventually they, they dropped it and just said, okay, you're free to go. But by that point, he had endured so much trauma uh, that it eventually ended in him taking his own life. So uh, I bring that up for the purpose of uh, really talking about the, the impact of incarceration, what it, what it can do to you. I mean, if, you get, if you're locked up and you're a person who is a low-income uh, earner and you're supporting a family, you missing your job, missing work means you've lost your you've lost your your job, and then what's the next thing that happens? You lose everything that you're paying for with that job. You lose your home, your family is uh, you know is affected. So, 
this idea of a plea, sometimes it's it's the not sometimes, most of the times it is the best case scenario in a just a completely screwed up situation. That's rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's terrible. Yeah. So um so e-carceration, right? So she goes on to talk about the uh wireless monitoring uh industry and how that allows for these corporations who may not, you know, they may have to deal with the change in sentiment regarding uh, more prisons. Uh, and, you know, people saying we don't want to do that. We uh, maybe want to repurpose our prisons for different purposes. We want our prison in prison population to go down. Mm-hmm. But what they do, their whole their whole goal is to make sure that they can keep their hands on these individuals. Yes, but even before she starts talking about the devices, yeah, uh, she talks about something else. She mentions there's a data scientist by the name of Kathy O'Neill mm-hmm. who introduced this other term called weapons of math destruction. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Which is pretty mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, algorithms, I'm quoting the article, algorithms recommended to judges whether a person who has been arrested should be released. Right. And so she goes on to say that just uh, explaining it on the surface, it might seem like, well, maybe it's an objective thing and everyone's kind of on a level playing field. But she says if you look closer, they are very biased and they're basically the same biases um, that were present in the system now being like mathematized into these algorithms that will (laughs) tell judges who who can be trusted and who can't be trusted. Mm -hmm. Kind of. Yeah, I thought that was a really... um a really telling point uh, because I think we are predisposed in, in this technical age we're in. If we feel like it came out of a computer, we, we feel like, okay, you know, it's good. Not understanding yeah, that. Yeah, like must be unbiased. That's a programmer a who did spit this. It out, then, yeah. Right. You know, it's a programmer. It's a coder behind this. Yeah. Uh, and their biases, like nobody has a view from starting from scratch. Either. Absolutely. The prison system is already there. Mm-hmm. You know? That's yeah. Probably their starting point is the system that already exists. Right. Yeah. And there is a. Uh, it's it's just like the private prisons have quotas. You know they have occupancy quotas, and the states that have private prisons that run, uh, you know, in their, uh, you know, in their state, if they fall short on how many prisoners they have provided to be housed in those uh, prisons, they have a penalty to pay. Yeah, they they have to. They still got it. So the, the idea is, these corporations, these private corporations, are are going to get their money. So they don't want to get you out. The no. private, they want to keep you there as long as they can. Absolutely, because that's how they make money. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a dirty business. It's a dirty business. And then when you start thinking about somebody who is, and I like this this also this um, comparison that she made about slavery versus the Jim Crow South. She says, if you were to ask a slave, would you rather live freely on your own but still but have to uh, but have to deal with the um, just to deal with the horrors of the, you know, of, of not segregation, but just a different type of oppression? Would you be willing to do it? But you, you can live freely. You got your family with you. And most most every slave would say, yes, I'd rather that. But it's still not it's still still not freedom. Right. Yeah. So she's making she's making a really 
strong argument that shows that the freedom that they are trying to uh, that tr- they're trying to offer is not real freedom. You outside, and I keep pushing to this to the, <laughs> to, to the wireless. Um, well, before we go into the wireless things, what else did you think in terms of the um, uh, that the algorithm? The algorithm. Do you think that that's something that's going to be pushed back on, where where they will have actually have to change, uh, you know, their, their coding, their programming? Well, they have to become public with it because she said a lot of times these algorithms are considered like proprietary, um, you know, uh, it's secret. I wasn't clear to what extent they're actually being used right now or are they proposed to be used. Mm-hmm. I think if it's something that's kind of seems like something that's in the process in its early stages right now, yeah. Uh, once this gets out, I'm expecting there to be a pretty big backlash against this, I would hope, because... I mean, it's not in anybody's interest, you know, except for the corporation. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. The people who are trying to make money, sure. But yeah. I mean, it's not in the interest of any one like demographic group. I think. No. Cause, because if that's the if that's the evidence against you, you know, right. you go to the judge and say this math is wrong or whatever, the judge is going to be like, no, it's <laughs> yeah, it's unbiased. Okay. I, I was, okay. You're talking about it just in terms of the the algorithm and the and the immediate. Yeah. Uh, effect of it yeah okay all right and once again this also brings us to another conversation not to get too far off um but who is more likely to be arrested who's more likely to be prosecuted mm-hmm. um how were police uh resources deployed throughout a city yeah especially when we're talking about cities that have diverse populations so this is really just the end point yeah, so, I mean, right now what they're talking about in the article is mainly just to kind of give judges a heads up or a hint as to who's most likely to skip the bail or whatever. Yeah. But if it becomes legitimized in this practice, then there's the risk of it becoming legitimized in, you know, a more, even a more sinister purpose. Right. And let, and let, me, let me go back again and just restate this for you. If you just, you know, if you just came on in the last minute or so, what we're talking about is... Uh, Algorithms that are being used or will be used to influence who gets to leave, who gets to uh, who gets to be free, right? Once they're arrested and processed uh, in lieu of bail, a cash bail, who is going to be able to get that ankle monitor that may or may not be functioning properly? Uh, that still that brings along with it its own limitations. But who gets it? And it's on an algorithm, right? If somebody's programmed it and uh, and written it, and it's a part of the court system, so that's that's what we're talking about. And and I can't see, I can't see like uh, ACLU. I think that might be something they want to would get in on. Yeah. Uh, NAACP. I mean, yeah. I think every civil rights organization should be planning to respond to this. And also. When we speak of algorithms now, we don't know to what extent um, federal law enforcement has employed this before when it comes to, like, anti-terror surveillance or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, This kind of technique where you build a profile and then whoever fits that profile kind of sets off a a flag or whatever and then they're more likely to go on, be surveyed, you know, tracked Mm -hmm. or online or whatever in various mocks. I don't know about that. That's to me is a, a pretty intriguing 
question as to where did this idea, you know, come from? This mm -hmm. idea of turning a human being into an algorithm that can be yeah, predicted, so mm -hmm. to speak. Well, you know what? In, in a world now where uh, data is its own industry, where, you know, ads are tailor-made for us based upon uh, our search history, you know, how much time we spend watching, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, being able to, when we go to shop somewhere, you know, somebody, you know, you, you're going to buy a bottle of water and somebody asks you, oh, so, uh, can I have your phone number? Yeah. Like, what the heck you need my phone number for? I'm just no, here to buy a bottle a of water. A few months ago, one of our coworkers was here. Mm -hmm. She said something, the name of a store or something like that, and it's just in a conversation she was having with us. Yeah. And all of a sudden her phone buzzes and it's like an ad for that store or whatever that she just That she just left? Yeah, no, no. Uh, what this was about? I think it was like last year. No, no. I mean, the story that she had just left, or just no, she was just talking about. She it. was talking about. Yeah, she was talking about just having a conversation <laughs> with us. Her phone, the settings must have had the microphone on or whatever. Yeah. So Google like observes it, whatever, and notices that it picks up on that, and then she gets an ad for that store or whatever that she was talking about. Yeah. So you see this idea of an of an algorithm that's connected to our um our virtual footprint you know if if you're somebody who's watched violent videos if you're somebody who has uh i mean i mean the, the tracking you know even if you got a vpn right for those folks you know your virtual private network if you have that there's still i would imagine there's still ways to track folks and i think um just in general there's so much of our lives that we don't really pay attention to that are that are being recorded and to think that that could be a part of, you know, God forbid, you've been, uh, you got picked up and you're in front of the judge and, and now they're basing whether or not you should go free off of, off your search history. You know, that's really scary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? This idea of an ankle monitor, uh -huh. it's kind of ridiculous considering that. Well, it's been around for a long time, but. Yeah, I know. I mean, GPS changed everything, right? That's also one of the, 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 the inventions from, from GPS. But every cell phone, everybody's phone, I don't think people even call them smartphones anymore. We used to, people would say, you know, your smartphone. Specifically, it's a yeah. smartphone with but a screen. No. Every phone now it's is a smartphone. A phone, yeah. And can be tracked. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't it be a whole lot less costly to simply have a person agree to be tracked? through their cell phone mm -hmm. as opposed to because when that ankle monitor goes on an individual they're paying for that ankle monitor who is that the person the person is paying for it yes i mean what do you mean they, they owe money to the absolutely wow yeah yeah you you pay you pay for all of that so i'm, I'm sure there's an easier way but once again we're not dealing with people who are looking for the easier way. They're looking for ways to uh, to turn a buck, to make a profit. So this is something to keep, you know, pay attention to. Uh, and we certainly will. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, again in the future. So let me get on to the – I'll just read part of the last yeah, yeah, paragraph of the article. Mm -hmm. So she says – she talks about all this kind of stuff that we summarized, the GPS tracking device um, – all of that and then she asked the question who benefits from this private corporations yep. according to a report released last month by the center for media justice 
four large corporations, including the GEO Group, one of the largest private prison companies, have most of the private contracts to provide electronic monitoring for people on parole in some 30 states, giving them a combined annual revenue of more than $200 million just for e-monitoring. Mm. See? Yeah. And that's not the state paying for that. That's these individuals that are, that are being saddled with that, with that debt. Um, and I, I'll quote her as well in this. And she, you know, she mentions, if uh, the goal is not to create a better system of mass criminalization, right, but instead the creation of safe, caring, thriving communities, then we've got to invest in the things that keep people from going to prison, from being arrested in schools, jobs, uh, mental health, all of the things that, uh, that we hear people, politicians, stump about, but really have not seen the kind of impact uh, that has that has uh, resulted in an outcome that reduces recidivism, that reduces our, our prison population. I'm going to throw another fact out. Cook County Jail. It is the largest mental health provider in the state. Wow. The Cook County Jail. In the whole state. In the state. Hmm. I mean, and, that, and that, just, that just goes to... Um, there's an intersection between uh, not just crime and mental health, but the, also homelessness. Yeah. Right. So these are these are areas that they've been overlooked, and to some degree, the cynic in me feel. No, I shouldn't say the cynic. The realist in me feels that uh, they're overlooked for on a, on purpose because this is where they farm. This is where they get the bodies that you know fill the beds in the in the prisons yeah this there's um something very troubling about our country and our place in the global economy is that i feel like we've made kind of these miniature economies out of stuff that's not supposed to be for profit yeah in reality like healthcare mm-hmm. is one big one education is another big one and now like incarceration re- is supposed to be rehabilitation um these are, to me, it's it's just very strange that we're trying to make, whether publicly or kind of more uh, in a more darker, like sinister, secret, secretive kind of way, to make an industry, a for-profit industry, a little economy out of this system that's supposed to be there to serve the people. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, it is the impact of, um, of of private of capitalism you know, uh, of, of yeah, private industry on whether it's education, mental health, uh, this idea that you can have a private entity come in and run an org- run an institution that's supposed to be uh, beholden to the citizens of the state um, and that they, they somehow can do it better and cheaper. Mm-hmm. But studies have shown that there's really, there's not a, a cost savings between those prisons that are privately run and those that are run by the state. Yeah. No, no, no difference. No difference. Now, for those of you, I I have to just want to throw this out here again. When you think about um, a system, uh, and to kind of, kind of dovetail a little little bit off what, what you just mentioned in terms of creating industries out of where there should be no industry. If you think about what is necessary for life. Um, 
and how people get those things when they're imprisoned and what they pay for those things, you realize that those people who are incarcerated are paying an exorbitantly higher price to live. I mean, for stuff, deodorant, socks, tele- electronics, everything. Phone calls, that's that's probably the biggest racket there. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, oh, it's collect calls and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people paying, you know, 30 bucks for a, a 10 minute phone call. Yeah. You know, it's like, what? And this, this is not an international call. This is, you know, you calling a few miles away. So this is, um, these are things that people who are looking out for those who can't advocate uh, for themselves that they're going to be paying attention to. And I also am going to connect this back to Florida's election and their decision to give uh, those who have completed their time, uh, they, they serve their time of incarceration, felonies, you know, whatever, and now have that right to vote. These are 1.4 million voters. And I think that these gonna be, are going to be people who are going to be waiting to go to the polls. And issues like this, these are going to be issues that people are not going to be, be able to ignore because when you had a population who couldn't vote, all they could do was complain. They had to wait for somebody else to speak on their behalf. So I think we're going to hear a lot of noise about this. And I'm, I'm glad for that. Yeah. Yeah. One little last thing. Yeah. That just kind of struck me was when we were, t- we were talking about industries that are really supposed to be social services, right? Mm-hmm. Like healthcare. Yeah. Now, I'm wondering, it's a topic for a, a whole nother discussion, <laughs> but is this kind of, is there such thing as, like we talked about e-carceration, yeah. is there such thing as e-sickness where you are an out, you t- they turn you into an algorithm that insurance companies can kind of predict, okay, this person is going to get sick, so they're going to have a higher rate, or this person might not get sick, so they have a different rate. Ooh, <laughs> that's a great topic. That is a great topic. And you know what I'm automatic? I'm thinking about, you know, everything is related to something else. So I'm thinking about intersections of environmental justice. Um, I'm thinking about, in, because actuaries, that's what they do. You know, they, they break down all the factors, your age, uh, your height, your weight, your family medical history, mm-hmm. where you live. I mean, it's gotten a, a whole lot uh, deeper now. So... To an extent, it already exists because yeah. if you have a history of, you know, a sickness, mm-hmm. uh, if you ha- if you already have acquired a certain illness, you know, right. your rates are going to be higher. But what about for people who, for all practical purposes, they're kind of a blank slate, right? Like you don't know. Yeah. But there's this other information out there. There's a digital fingerprint or whatever out there that kind of gives a history of your life and your lifestyle or whatever that can be accessed and used. I don't know. Uh, you know, bro. Not, certainly not my you know. <laughs> area of expertise or whatever, but an interesting well, you know, question. Yeah, we, we're just throwing throwing stuff out there. Um, if your shopping history can be can be detailed, right? Right. Yeah. So if they it can, it can. Yeah, it is. And you have to fill out the application, and it says, "Do you drink? Do you smoke?" Mm-hmm. And they have a record of yep. you already buying alcohol. You know, yeah. and it's not, and of course they got the algorithm right to say that maybe it, was, it wasn't just a one-off time. It was we got a record of you habitually buying these things. We have a record of you being in certain spaces where, yeah, it's it's you know where people are smoking, uh, 
So you could, you know, you could be someone who's uh, inhaling secondhand smoke. Uh, yeah, you open up a, a big, uh, a big box on that one. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know what? And I think that's why. If that actually becomes the case, or if it is the case, things like pre-existing conditions become so important. Um, not being penalized for your family's medical history yeah. becomes, you know, becomes important. We got to see who's doing research on this. Yeah. I mean, somebody's, yeah. <laughs> I know yeah, somebody is. Somebody yeah. 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 All right. We are going to, uh, we're going to say thank you. Yeah. Thanks for hanging out with us. Um, we thank our engineers over at WCEV. We thank you once again. Look forward to our next time. Uh, I'm your host, Tariq Alameen. Next to me, assistant producer, the impressive one, Ibrahim Beg. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. And we remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, we leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.